All right, church, and while the kiddos are uh, taken off, you all can turn to Zechariah chapter 1. We're continuing in our series through Zechariah. This is the second week. Last week we went through the first six verses talking about uh, really what... What is happening there in the first six verses is it's laying a premise. What is the purpose of the book of Zechariah? What was the prophet Zechariah raised up to do? Um, and we went through that. If you missed that, you can go back uh, on the podcast and listen to last week's sermon. We'll hit a little bit of a recap here, too, in just a minute. Church, before we really dive in... Um, I know for sure, like for me, sometimes it's like we come here and we're through the songs and we're like, all right, cool. We're like, we're almost there, right? We're like, we're approaching 11 o'clock. We're keeping an eye on it. And I want us to really just focus in because sometimes it, it, it's easy, most of the times really, to come in and, and like, oh, this is just a message and we're just going to learn a little bit from it. We're going to feel a little bit better. We're going to feel a little bit worse, right? Because that's the way the preaching seems to go here at, at New Hill. We, we feel a little worse and we're reminded of God's grace and, and how he set us free and we should go live freely for him. But I want us to, to, to sit for a minute and to think what we're here to do as these prophets, specifically in the Old Testament, right? When we're looking at these prophets, God has raised prophet after prophet up to call his people back to himself. These were the, 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 the preachers, right? They're proclaiming God's word over the nation and saying, cry out to me, says the Lord of hosts, cry out, turn to me, repent. And here we are on the Lord's Day, proclaiming the same message to those who are, who are already uh, saved by grace. You, you've believed in Christ your Savior, but you've wandered away this week through various trials and just disobedience. Would we draw near to the Lord this morning through his word? To those of you who are, who are questioning your faith and that you've never had faith, you've never believed, therefore you've never been saved. Repent. And draw near to the Lord this morning. Can we, can we take a moment and be in an attitude of prayer and really draw near to the Lord through his revealed word? He's revealed himself to us through it. So let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We know that you are sovereign. We know that your attributes display your glory God, we know that your word sanctifies. We know that your grace is sufficient. We know that your word is sufficient. And I pray that in this moment we would pause. We would not become focused on the clock, but God, we would become focused on your word. God, I pray that as we look to the words of Zechariah, this wouldn't be a distant memory for the Jews of that day. But God, the calling for us today to remember our sins, to repent and to trust in you and your sovereignty. Oh, God, would you lead us this morning? Would your spirit guide us to your word? And with a very difficult text, would you would you illuminate the truth of this passage to us? Father, we pray all these things by the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, so last week, so we started Zechariah. So the theme of this book, it's what we're going to continue hitting on. So some of you all should have got scripture journals. That's our gift to you. Um, everybody, if you got your scripture journal here week two, raise it up. All right, so we got some scripture journals. That's awesome. They are on the book cart. We've got plenty. Make sure you grab one. What we want you to do is join us in this series. Write down questions. Take notes. You can send those questions in to newhilloh.com slash ask to get a biblical response. 
But we're going through this book and this theme of the Lord remembers, it's literally it's Zechariah's name, right? Like names had meaning, right? Zechariah means the God remembers, right? But as we move through this book, we see not only does the Lord remember, but the Lord restores. Because Zechariah has been raised up to call God's people back to active obedience. Because after the Babylonian exile, they become very stale, right? Which is really weird when you, when you leave, when, when you've been freed from captivity... And then you go and you live as though you were more bound than the chains you were just bound in under another empire. But we begin to look at themes like this and we look at our own life. We've been freed from the bondage of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet we live as though we are more bound and more depressed than those who were apart from him and will be eternally apart from him unless they repent. Why do we live like that? So last week was the basis for what Zechariah was going to be laying down, that God was calling his people back to himself. Around the same time, just 20, 30 years prior, you've got Haggai raised up to call God's people to rebuild the temple. You have Nehemiah's around the same time frame. Nehemiah's calling God's people to get back up and rebuild the walls. You've got Malachi to rebuild the heart, right? Look to your heart. Return to the Lord. Repent. He's coming. Esther, who helped lead the Babylonian exile, that God raised her up for such a time as this. And here in Zechariah, remember your sins and repent, we talked about last week. That God remembers, but we should also remember that in remembering our past and remembering the past of our ancestors and our fathers, our forefathers of the faith, that we can look and see what they did and what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. We can look to Paul's words as he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So as we look at the first vision, so bear with me, we're going to finish up chapter one this morning. And it's, you think maybe some of you over at Revelation, I don't know if you spent any time in Zechariah, same kind of thing. We're looking at visions. We're looking at imagery. How does it correlate? How do we figure out what exactly is going on here in this passage? But as we do, I want us to, to see this main point and that's trusting the sovereignty of God. Trusting the sovereignty of God. We're going to see this vision and we're going to see it play out. We're going to see what what God intends for his people and what he was trying to get through to Zechariah and surely for us today that we too, church, must trust in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty, meaning that God is not just capable of being in control, not that God can do what he wants, but that God does do what he wants. That God's powerful, all powerful, all knowing and at all places. Therefore, there's nothing that happens that isn't according to his will. So this is a very depressed people. Uh, We talked about last week how you're not going to read about um, a King David. You're not going to read about these great figures. This isn't Noah's story of building the ark and acting in faith and calling everybody to come and join and, and being rejected. This is a bunch of the rejected being told about the hope that they have in the coming Messiah. And even further to the kingdom that will be restored one day. So church, we must trust in the sovereignty of God, not just not just believe that in our heart, but actively, proactively believing that through our actions. Do we try and take matters into our own hands or are we trusting in the sovereignty of God? I want to look at a few attributes of God to to drive home our trusting in the sovereignty of God. That's he is provider and protector. That'll be one. He is merciful 
and he is judge. First off, he is provider and protector. Do not assume that we have this point down. We, oh, God provides, right? God provided me with a job that helps me put food on. Yes, we, we say those things. But it's, it's in how we live and what we do that will actually proclaim those things over our life and to the life of those around us. So look at verse 7 with me. On the 24th day, the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? Let me stop there. I already went. One verse too far. So we're going to focus in here on verses 7 through 11 uh, for this point of he is provider and he is protector. So there's so much potential symbolism here, right? We, we open up and we, we get the very first vision and we're told again who this is, who's receiving this vision. It's Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Eru. So you can go back and you see the lineage. And it says that I saw in the night and behold a man riding a red horse. You start to read this and it's like, Pastor, do you have any commentaries? That, that was going to be my question, right? But Pastor Mark dropped off like three commentaries. And I'm like, I'm so thankful that in their context, they understood what exactly was what was going on, right? So then you run into Myrtle, right? It says there, saw in the night and behold a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the Myrtle trees in the glen. And behind them were red sorrel and white Horses. So the myrtle here could represent a few things. It could represent salvation, which surrounds God's people. There's so much to be said with just this myrtle plant that we could sit and we could just preach on these myrtle trees and what they were and covering and representing salvation for God's people. As Christ, the king protects his people, protects his nation. As Christ, the king, the one on the red horse, who is that? The one on the red horse is Christ himself leading his people and soldiers into battle. And regardless of all the potential imagery, the one thing stands true is that Christ is king and he does cover his people with salvation. And then we look at the state of his people. Matthew Henry says this, when you read this in the night, behold, so it's dark. Behold, a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. Matthew Henry says that this picture that is being painted for us from this imagery, that there's a myrtle, myrtle trees in the glen. This is a dark and shady grove hidden by hills. And this represented the low condition of the Jewish church. Remember the context. God had set them free from their captivity, which was part of their judgment. The 70 years of, of, of exile. This was God's judgment on them. And now they're back. They've been freed. But the enemy seems to be the one who's victorious, surrounding them and thriving and prospering. 
So instead of worshiping God, instead of being faithful and being obedient, they live in despair. And how much can we relate to that? As we see the world, it seems like they're doing well. It seems like things are getting better for the world. And we sit here as Christians. We wonder, are we going to be able to worship here in a year freely? Like those are the concerns in church. Let me tell you something. That's not just an American issue. That's that's an issue that Jesus said they will hate you because they hated me. You will be persecuted. So that's a state that is inevitable, right? We can go guns, guts, glory all we want. It's going to happen. Now, I'm not saying this is a a statement that you just leave it all down. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is the state of the church is always going to be this until our Savior comes back. This lowly state. Told you, if this is your first time here, we we get low and we, we feel terrible at first. But we're getting to the grace, right? We're talking about Jesus. But we have to remember, like we talked about last week, our sins and our state and our condition. So that we can see and we can taste the grace of God. You remember their context. And you can see how much we relate to that. Though despite their state, consider their Savior. Church, despite your state, despite your circumstance, consider your Savior, your Lord, Jesus Christ. Who is depicted as the man on the red horse fighting for his people. This is a soldier. The issue with, with this, this 2022 Jesus is Jesus is, is all love. No, Jesus is love, but Jesus is judgment, which we'll get to in a minute. Jesus is mercy, but Jesus is also wrath. God is wrath. God is love. He's all of those things. He embodies those things. He's not just, just objectively those things. He is love. He is mercy. He is also wrath. He is sovereign. And we must trust in his sovereignty. Look at verses 8 through 11. So you see the, the man riding the red horse is standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. Behind him, red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, which is what we would say, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked to me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So you have the man riding the red horse, right? He's the one standing among the myrtle trees. Verse 11. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the uh, myrtle trees. The angel of the Lord. We're making the connection. The one on the red horse is the one standing among the myrtle trees. In verse 11, the one standing among the myrtle trees is the angel of the Lord. Now, not everybody would say that that's Jesus, right? If you go and read commentaries, you type that in on Google, you may run into some things, but it is highly and widely accepted that that is Jesus. This is a foreshadow of Jesus. So they see Jesus when they see the angel of the Lord here. And he's the one standing there. This is our Lord Jesus. And we're getting this picture. We're getting the explanation. The man among the myrtle trees says this in verse 10. These are whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. They are his soldiers, spies to watch over the earth. And in verse 11, they give the Lord a report of what is going on. That the earth is at rest. 
Israel as a nation, God's people are not at rest. They are uneasy. But the world around them, while chaos abounds for God's people, they seem easy. Why is that? Well, church, the contrast here is that the earth is not our home. We are but guests. When I was a, a kid, um, I had a very wealthy friend. Um, they, they did very well for themselves, and he came into my life a little too late to get any inheritance, right? So uh, it's unfortunate. But I remember going to his house, and I was like, man, like, I've never been up here in Stanford Park before. This is sweet. We used to always drive by it. My mom would, like, just drive. And I'm like, oh, I'd be asleep and know we were passing Stanford Park after a baseball game. It's just what it was, right? So driving past it, I got to go to my friend's house finally. And he's showing me all these rooms and he walks me up and there's this bookcase that moves. And I was like, man, this is really cool that I get to, to be a guest here. But I realized something really quick is that you were a guest in other people's homes. No matter how fascinating you find their home, you're a little uneasy. Because there's no way that I could go back up to Mr. Tudor's room and walk up and want to see what's actually behind that bookshelf without being called out and being told, this isn't your home, man. Like, you don't get what's back there. You don't get what's a part of the safe. You can have stories. We'll share stories with you. But, but you are a guest here. And I'm reminded of that same truth here on earth. Everything seems so beautiful, right? Everything on the outside of these walls just seems so great. The world seems fine. And then I'm reminded by our suffering as believers that this isn't our home. And all the good that the world has to offer, all the good, doesn't compare to the riches that Christ has stored in heaven for his people. Amen, church? See, heaven is not their home, and they will not enter it without repentance. We better understand, church, God's providence and protection. And we will better understand it when we know his omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. That is omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. Omniscience, he's all-knowing. And omnipresence, he's in all places. When we understand those three things, we can better understand his providence and protection and trust in his sovereignty. See, being completely sovereign, he's also completely in control. God does as he pleases. And he shows mercy to his people. God is merciful. Point number two. We have a merciful God, right? Like gracious in that he gives us that which we don't deserve. Life and eternal life of that, right? Mercy that is withholding something that we do deserve. So you're not just exchange something that's good and you keep the bad. No, it says it says in the scriptures that we are made a new creation. It doesn't mean that that you're kind of worked on a little bit, tweaked a little bit. You get to keep the the limp leg, but you've got a better brain. No, we are a new creation. It's mercy that God has withheld that which we did deserve, not just given us what we don't deserve. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This, this psalm encapsulates the goodness and the graciousness and the mercy of God, that he is slow to anger, that his people should have just been left. Time and time again, prophet after prophet raised up only for them to continue to fall into the despair Christ had not given up on his people. 
It's also an important context to keep in mind. And the vision, this is a clear depiction of God's mercy coming to Jerusalem yet again, time and time again. But at the time of receiving this vision, they are not living faithfully. Think about that. The mercy and the grace of God. Consider Romans 5.8 that says that while we were sinners, Christ died. This call is, is giving a hope. Hey, this hope is coming. You all are a disobedient people. Look at what is coming your way. You see that? Therefore, repent. Cry out. God is faithful. God is good. He is gracious. And he's calling us to himself. He's showing them his sovereignty. It says in verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. The angel, not the angel of the Lord. I was talking to, to Nelson this week. I was like, hey, how was reading the scripture? He reads the scripture ahead of time. and He goes over it and over it and over it. He says just a bunch of translations. You know, uh, you could have let you, you preach, especially this part of trying to figure out who's talking to whom or whom is to whom, uh, however that works. It's going back and forth and trying to figure out who's talking. This here is the angel, not the angel of the Lord Jesus, speaks on behalf of God's people. This is what the angel says for the people of Jerusalem. How long? How long will this continue? We've patrolled the earth and the earth is at rest. The people, your people, your covenant people, God, are in despair. How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry for 70 years? 70 years, this would be a referral to the time and Babylonian captivity, you can refer to Jeremiah 25, 11 and uh, 29, 10. If you want to write that down, you can look back and see those 70 years. Some people will try and say the 70 years isn't significant. I think they can make a good case for that. I do believe it's significant. And I believe that that would have rang true in their ears. Right. Like when I when I go back home and we talk about 1970, you know, about Marshall's plane crash or 1969, 1970. Everybody who lived in that, they know. That rings true. That date in November approaches and everybody, it's, it's, it's a solemn time for the people in West Virginia. This would have rang true. Surely Zechariah would have been, giving, been given this vision and thinking like, oh, seven, I know that. I don't believe and don't hold to this just being insignificant, an insignificant number. This refers to that time. Remember that time. God, how long would you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered with what? Gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. That he is slow to anger, right? He's gracious. He's comforting. He's the comforter, right? Look at 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 and 4. You don't have to turn there, but maybe write it down for later. Paul says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God is comforting his people and through his people, comforting his people. Does that make sense? 
That as God is showing and bestowing his grace upon you and your life, you are to go and to be a conduit of that grace and pouring it out to those in our church family, pouring it out to those in this community, going and being a light, being merciful as the God who saves is merciful, speaking truth with grace and with mercy, being seasoned with salt. That doesn't mean don't speak truth. I mean, speak it with mercy, with grace, boldly proclaiming. But God is gracious. He's merciful. He's a comforter. And we ought to also be comforters. Look at his, look at his attributes, right? We, we see his attributes over and over that he is merciful. That's what I want us to see this morning. As we read the scriptures this morning and as you leave here today and read the scriptures this week, as you read the scriptures, would you consider the sovereignty of God, knowing that God is in all control? Look at his attributes. Look how his attributes attest to his being and even his covenants. Jonathan Edwards says this. Says it is the will of God to manifest his sovereignty and his sovereignty, like his other attributes, is manifested and the exercise of it. He glorifies his power and the exercise of his power. He glorifies his mercy and the exercise of his mercy. He glorifies his sovereignty and the exercise of his sovereignty. God is, that's end quote, right? God is showing himself by the way he, he lives and he breathes amongst us, right? That, that Jesus, the God man came and displayed the power of God. That God, time and time again, with just viewing creation itself, displays his power and his magnitude to all of creation. And ultimately, God displays and continually displays his sovereignty by constantly displaying all of these attributes which attest to his power, strength, and presence. Omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence, right? Verse 14. So the angel who talked with me said, cry out, thus says the Lord, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. This is the hope, right? Think about the low place in the glen being covered and surrounded by the myrtle trees. Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm extremely, exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with what? Mercy. Church, say mercy. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. See, God is angry with the nations. See, it it seemed as though he was angry with his people, but there's a difference in, in godly discipline for his children. And the judgment that will come upon those who are not adopted into his family, those who don't repent and believe. There is a difference. There's a difference in his love. He has a general love for all of creation, and he's got a special love for those who repent and believe. Right? It's, it's easy to think about, right? I love all of your children, but there's a different love for my children. 
And if we adopt a child, same thing. They come into our family, that's our child. We love them a little bit differently than other children, right? All the children, we, they're great. We love all the NH kids. But it's our kids in the Meadows family that there's this special love for. And there should be. It speaks to the gospel. It speaks to the gospel. And just as there's a difference with that love, there's a difference with the discipline and the judgment that is coming. We are disciplined. Like a refining furnace, making us more into the image and likeness of Christ our Savior. God disciplines those who he loves. But this anger with the nations is different. Why? Because it's God's zealous love for his people and anger to those who act against them that causes him to return and rebuild. It's his love for you, believer, that he's angry with the nations. It was one thing that they didn't like him, weren't going to follow him, they despised him. It's another thing that they are now oppressing his covenant people who should be thriving. Jerusalem should have been built, the wall should have been built, the temple should have been built. But they were afraid of the enemy, that their walls would come crumbling down again. Church, we ought to trust in the sovereignty of God. We ought to know that God is in control. We ought to know that God has a plan and nothing can thwart that plan. Amen, church? We have to believe that. You see, trusting God is essential to saving faith. So I've I've talked to to many of you and, and maybe haven't expressed some of the things that in my own walk, but that when we question God, it's what we do with that questioning that determines where our heart really is. Does that make sense? That it's okay. It makes sense that we would sit there and be like, is God really the only real God? Like, it's, like you start to think about creation and the world says like big bang. And you're like, man, like this is confused. What you do with that will determine certain things in your life. Do you really believe, right? You're at a crossroads in your marriage. My wife says, you say you really love me, but there's these two pillows at Target that I really want on a Saturday night, right? Like, let's, we'll go get them tomorrow. And I'm like, this seems like a crossroads where it's time for me to just go get those pillows and, and prove where my allegiance is, right? Like, what we do with that, yeah, that happened, by the way, right? Like, I, where, where, she's not in here. Nope. All right, cool. I can brag a little bit. When got them last night, I was like, she's had kind of a rough day. I'm going to go get those pillows and, and prove my love and affection, right? I didn't just think about what would it be if I went and did that? We think about these things as, as Christians, but it's our trust, where our trust lands that proves what we really believe. God is angry with the nation. This is a future hope of Jerusalem's rebuild, a display of God's Mercy and control. Now, some believe that this has already been completed. Okay, Uh, I'm not of that persuasion. I think people make good arguments, but I believe Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. I believe God's going to establish his millennial kingdom. I believe that just as this word says that Jerusalem and Zion will prosper again and again and again, I will comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. I believe that is to come. We've seen a picture of it. We've seen God establishing his kingdom, but I believe there's more to come. That's my disposition. But church, it is in his sovereignty is also displayed as judgment for God is judge. Last point. God is merciful. But you look at look at his anger there. And it's his love for his covenant people in which he's angry. That church, as we go out and that oppression that you feel, it's real. But remember and take comfort in the words of Jesus. They hate you because they hated me. It's going to happen. It will. 
People will look at us like cross-eyed, wondering what we're doing, what we're talking about. Why we believe what we believe. This book's thousands of years old. How can you believe that? Because it's God's word. It's been revealed to us and given to us for our good and for his glory. We see here that he is the judge. What happens if we get the second vision? So we're going to get two visions this week. Verse 18. Get a little bit of imagery here. By the way, if you have bigs, we're just focusing. If your kids are in elementary class, they shouldn't come out talking about too much imagery. They're going to be focusing on verses 16 and 17 and verse 21. Just trying to help them figure it out. So if you're going to facilitate those discussions, uh, don't feel like you have to be like, what do you think about the horns? Like right when you get in the car. Like they may not know what you're talking about with the horns, but they will know the main theme. Verse 18, and I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nation who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. See, God is judge. Those horns, they represent the powers that have been raised up to oppress God's people. Some people will take those four horns and they try and point it to four specific nations. I don't believe we have to do that, but I believe we could specifically point to four nations. But I think for sure it represents this idea of of violence and, and an attack on God's people. When you think horns, you think like, I don't want to get hit by one of those, right? Like Where I'm from in a holler, we don't want to get hit by those either, right? You see horns, you go. Get out of the the way. So these horns represent that oppression of the world, not just a sense of oppression, that, that the world is against God's people, his covenant people, particularly for Israel. This is what they were dealing with. But in comes four craftsmen. What are these coming to do? There looks like some hope. What is this? This is symbolic of God's judgment that is to come. Not simply for an attack on his people, but an attack on him, our God. See, when the church is is pushed back against, it's not simply an attack on us. It's an attack on God. That's why we can trust in his sovereignty and say, I don't need to intervene. I'm going to speak the truth boldly. And I know that all things will be brought to light. Church, that can give you comfort in your oppression, in your suffering, that you know that Christ is going to fulfill every bit of his word. Amen? It will be fulfilled. God is coming in judgment. See, an unprovoked move on Israel was an attack on God himself. See, this is reversing course. Think about their context. Think about our context. Where the earth felt at rest and at peace, they will soon be disrupted. The same suffering church we face from the world will indeed reverse course. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, verses 16 and 17. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Man, you can go ahead and come back up. Church, God is coming back in judgment. So there's two things as a Christian. So I want to talk to the Christian. And then maybe if you're here today and you're not a believer, I want to talk to you. 
There's two things we've got to discern and figure out. We're trusting the sovereignty of God. So we also need to understand that, that not everything that feels like oppression on you is oppression. It could be discipline from God. Not from the world disobeying him, but from us disobeying him. Because God doesn't want me to continue in sin, right? No, he wants to display his power and conquer every bit of sin in my life and in your life. So there's moments, as Hebrews says, that, that God disciplines those whom he loves. So if you're a Christian, you're going to be disciplined and thus sanctified. Because through that process of, of sanctification and discipline, you're going to be made better. Because you're going to be not made the better version of yourself, but you're going to be made into the image and likeness of Christ Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. And then we have to trust in his sovereignty because when the world is oppressing and it feels like we want to take up our fist and fight. We want to use words where God says, be gracious, but be truthful, be bold, but be gracious. We've got to use that discernment, but trust that God is bringing all things to light. There's nothing that the enemy will do to attack the church that God will not expose and judge for one day. Right. Now, that's. That's tough, right? No, that should encourage us to go witness to them. Hey, you too can be forgiven. You too can experience this grace. And you too one day can see this kingdom rise and prosper. Praise be to God. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. And he's in all places. His presence is everywhere. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Lord, you've not surrendered your life to him. The Lord does remember. The Lord remembers everything. And how could he not? He's got patrols. He's got his presence amongst all creation. There's not a place he isn't. There's not a place or thing that he doesn't know. And there's no power that could overrule this. One day those things will be brought to light. And those who are in Christ will be raised to newness of life. And those who don't will be raised to damnation. Separation for all of eternity. I'd be a fool to leave here this morning and not tell you of this terrible news so that I can point you to the good news. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty on the cross that if you believe and repent, you will be saved. And you get to rejoice and you get to see this one day come to fruition that God is coming back in judgment. And it sounds so terrible, but guess what? At that moment, the reverse... The reverse, of course, has then taken place. That the earth seems to be at rest now while we were uneasy. But one day we will be in our fullness. We will receive our glorified body and praise him forever. Repent and believe. Church, this week, find ways to trust in the sovereignty of God. How can you trust in the sovereignty of God as you leave here this morning? Knowing that, that despite whatever comes your way this week, that you can praise God and know that he's in control of that situation. Let me give you one tangible way that you can do that. Call somebody here in this room when crap hits the fan. Do life together. You're not meant to go home and, and be depressed about that alone. No, God has given us a church family to love on and to care for one another, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do not bear that burden alone. Cast your burden to the cross and count on one another to point one another to the grace and the goodness, the gospel of Jesus Christ over all of our life.
That's vision number one and two done. I'm excited to continue in this series. But church, this challenge shouldn't be taken seriously. Like we're, we're right at 11, right? I don't know how many of us have been following the clock. But remember that the Lord remembers and the Lord restores. He is a good and faithful God. Praise be to him. Let's stand and sing and look into that as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, for your provision, for your protection over your people. We pray that you would continue to go before us to lead the way. God, that we would be gracious. We would be the salt of the earth, pointing people with boldness, with grace to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would just continue to move in a mighty way amongst your people, drawing us closer to yourself through your word. God, we pray that we would trust in you. We would trust in your sovereignty. We would rest in your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.